0: Welcome, everybody, to Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Dawson. I'm here again with Bill Rojo. Bill.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and we have been running FDD's Long War Journal for too long now, for a long, long time. And this week, we're pleased to have another guest from FDD with us, uh, Jonathan Schanzer, a longtime colleague and friend of ours. Um, he's the senior vice president for research at FDD. He's done a lot of work, particularly in the past, on the subject areas that we cover at Long War Journal. He's somebody we have a lot of respect for. He's a good-looking dude as well, I would say. You're a fine-looking man, John, I'd say, you know. You're hot, and, uh And uh, he has one unfortunate um, characteristic, however, that he shares with Bill, which is they are both from the Philadelphia area and they're both Philadelphia fans. They both move for the Philadelphia Eagles. I have to apologize as the New Yorker representative on this podcast for them both in advance. If you're one of my fellow New Yorkers, I'm sorry. You're going to have to listen to them. Uh, but, John, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. And uh, I look forward to representing my city.
1: Yeah, John. Don't don't worry, man. Tom, he he New Yorked up for this episode. You guys can't see the video, but he's got a New York hat, a New York T-shirt. Yeah, it, you know what? I, I I view it as a cry for desperation over there. Right? <laughs> you know, he's just he's got to show his colors for some reason. You know, it's the small man syndrome. I'll I'll just leave it at that.
0: Yeah. Uh Well, in this case, I don't have a small man syndrome. Too much in my life. I've had too much in my life. I've had the opposite. <laughs> but uh, the uh, the uh, uh, as the, I felt like somebody had to represent the four-time Super Bowl champions as opposed to the one-time Super Bowl champions. Well, so you know,
1: um, it's it's event. been a while, Tom. So you know, don't let's in any
0: event. Um, all right, so let's get let's get down to business, John. Uh, we were talking about you know what we were going to talk about today. The p- planning to plan, as they would say in the movie Office Space. You know, planning to plan for the podcast, and the first thing that came to my mind when we were going to sit down and explain to listeners, why we're having you on and why it's important. What you have to say is important is that we've given you a lot of credit through the years at being out in front on the issue of al Qaeda's so-called affiliates. You wrote a short book slash long monograph called Al-Qaeda's Armies, I think it was titled, um, quite a while ago. Um, That book was prescient in a lot of ways in terms of understanding what Al-Qaeda was due to spread the jihad and grow geographically. Bill and I have talked through the years about how most of the energy in the counterterrorism field, at least in terms of publicly facing experts, has been spent trying to play disconnect the dots on that, trying to explain away this geographic expansion of Al Qaeda, which then I would argue led to the expansion of ISIS as well in certain ways, but we can come back to that. But maybe you want to talk a little bit about your original research. This was very early on, in the post 911 era. You caught on very quickly that Al Qaeda wasn't just this discrete band of not so merry men in Pakistan and Afghanistan waiting to be droned to death. But in fact, they had resources and assets elsewhere. Maybe talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on guys. And and congrats. It's amazing. I remember when you guys started this podcast. So uh, kudos to you for keeping it going. um, Even if you are a Giants fan, Tom, Um, what I, um, you know, I guess when I look back at at that book, um, you know, the, the the moment for me where I kind of opened my eyes and realized there was something to, to assess was, it was actually September 23rd, 2001, right? That was the day that Executive Order 13224 was rolled out. And uh, the Bush administration named a number of uh, Al-Qaeda's operatives, and but also uh, ended up naming a bunch of groups that no one had ever heard of. And, you know, they ranged from a group in Yemen called the uh, Islamic Army of Aden Abiyan, uh, another one called the GSPC, which was based out of uh, Algeria. Um, That one, by the way, went on to become AQIM as it's known today. Um, The other one went on to become AQAP. And and so you can see the sort of staying power uh, of of the analysis that came out on that day. But what was just so interesting to me is that nobody was tracking these groups. So the, the Bush administration went out of its way to name them and to designate them and had a whole process for doing so And no one was looking at it. So I spent uh, about two years at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy uh, writing about these groups, looking into them, in some cases traveling, um, as I did to Yemen. um, uh, And uh, the Algerians wouldn't let me in, by the way. After a couple of years of of looking at it, it was it was really interesting because these groups were kind of a, a mixture of Al Qaeda's global ideology fused with domestic politics. And it was that admixture of the, uh, the Al Qaeda ideology and the domestic politics that made these groups so dangerous. They were fighting for two reasons. And if, um, you know, you just got a sense that they weren't going anywhere. And in fact, they haven't. And I argue then, I still argue today that these groups make up the, the, the real dangerous constellation um, of Al Qaeda's threat to the United States and to other countries around the world.
1: And just for everyone listening, I mean, John's writings on this were revolutionary, were uh, way ahead of its time. One of the things, you know, both Tom and I have documented is Al Qaeda's building their armies, which is known as Lashkar zil or the Shadow Army and the Afghanistan, Pakistan region. And this Al, al- Qaeda didn't come up with this fusion, as John noted, noted, um, just out of which it did in Afghanistan and Pakistan, it, just by accident, it used what it did in Yemen and Algeria and elsewhere as a model, and that's what made Al Qaeda so effective and made it, um, it it's a it gave it the ability to um to to establish armies in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, and Pakistan and in and Somalia and whatnot because of, of this. And you know, so John, I just have to not really a question here. I just have to commend you for your. Um, just for for being so far ahead of the curve on this issue it, it it your writing really inspired my work um you know from years ago and i I want to share one more thing about john uh this is a- comp- well i guess it 's professional uh, I met John in Philadelphia in what was it may two thousand and ten this is when they recruited me to uh become a, a fellow at f d d um I was just running the long war journal working with Tom. And, uh, this is Tom. You'll hate this story, but, uh, both, uh, John and, uh, and Mark Dubowitz came down and what did we do? Did we go to a fancy restaurant? Nope. We went to cheesesteak, get cheesesteaks, not only one cheesesteak. We had to go to both Pat's and Gino's to get, because I think Mark, uh, never had either. And we had to sample both cheesesteaks. So it was a fantastic job interview. Um, I, uh, I'm very thankful for those cheesesteaks Or still go down to South Philly and grab our those arteries
2: are, are still getting cleared out.
1: <laughs> we we got to do that sometime soon. Go to the, get some steaks and go to an Eagles. By the way, the
2: follow-up to that was going to a flyers game when, uh, <laughs> was cheering for the capitals and, and almost got pummeled by a Philadelphia faithful standing behind us. You had to step in and, uh, bury your teeth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, my friend Bill was there. He's an old, old, I've known him since first grade and he can always be in my foxhole. We just turned around and told that guy to bite it. And he did. <laughs> but good times, John. It's been, we've, I've been a fellow at FTD for what, almost 11, coming up on 11 years now. Yeah. You guys you were started
2: the- around the time that I did. So uh, yeah. it's been, it's been a long partnership and, and one that we obviously appreciated FTD.
1: Yeah, no, same here. And it was, you know, meeting you it was fantastic. I was a little, you know, again, you're writing it, just like I said, that was just so a lot of the work that Tom and I have done has been tracking Al Qaeda's armies. And so, you know, one thing I'll
2: just say about about that, which I think people still kind of forget, and that is that, you know, when when you look at what happened in Afghanistan, and, and the fights that took place in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, right? What you had were a bunch of ragtag fighters from all over the region that had been recruited to fight for Al-Qaeda. And when we went in and cleared it out, um, they had nowhere to go but home, right? So you had these guys who were battle-hardened fighters who had no choice, basically, but to return to the countries where they came from. And and this actually really contributed to the Al-Qaeda problem, the, the affiliate group problem that we've been tracking and it's, I think, one of the main reasons why. And you'll still see it with, you know, Syria and with um, with Iraq and ISIS, right? I mean, you still see, you know, foreign fighters that have come to the theater and then ultimately return home, and they're the ones that pose that that great threat regionally. Um, and we still see it. And you guys have tracked it better than anyone else that Al Qaeda controls through these affiliate groups more territory today than they ever have in the past. And that's, I think, al- almost entirely due. To the affiliate phenomenon,
0: you know, you know just to uh, just just to underscore your point there, John, when you look at Al Qaeda's so-called affiliates today, they're really we, we, the way they refer to them is as regional branches because they each have their territory that these regional emirs are responsible for waging jihad in. Um, when you look at them today, you could the predominance of veterans of the jihad in Afghanistan is crystal clear. Now, obviously, they they recruited new talent in these theaters as well, and people tend to discount that, but the Um, veteran phenomenon is quite distinct. I mean, so in in Yemen, for example, Khaled Batarfi, he's a veteran of the Al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan pre-9-11. He's the head of AQAP. He has several people around him who are all veterans of Afghanistan pre-9-11. You have in Syria, you have a total mess, and we're not going to get into that today, of what Al-Qaeda looks like in Syria today. But one of the groups, Harris al-Din, one of its chief leaders um, is a guy known as Farouk who is a, in fact, another veteran of the, uh, he was actually a trainer at al Farouk, okay, Al his principal training facility in Afghanistan pre-9-11. So this phenomenon you, you were writing about in 2004, and we can go on with examples all the way to West Africa and elsewhere in Shabaab, of course. But the point is this phenomenon you were documenting in 2004 is very much still with us today in 2021. It's still very much the, a, a central part of the ongoing terrorism portfolio or issues that we're dealing with. And I noticed you, you wrote this, I think you published this uh, in 2004 Basically, right around the time, or probably shortly before, Al Qaeda had its first official branch somewhere in Al Qaeda in Iraq when uh, Abu Musab al Zarqawi swears allegiance to Bin Laden. And then, so you were you were writing about this before the before this model became official within Al Qaeda's uh, sort of paradigm for understanding the world. And then, of course, in 2006 and seven, really 2006, but GSPC, which you wrote about in Al Qaeda's armies, becomes al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb part of this whole thing. Now, this is a process, obviously, that has had some drawbacks and created some problems for al-Qaeda. Every organization has them, of course. But again, you know, I think if people would look at this, this al-Qaeda's armies, Middle East affiliate groups, and the next generation of terror, written in 2004, holds up pretty damn well, John, I would say, after all these years.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, Yeah. And and by the way, you know, looking at the Iraq model, one of the, you know, I, I was looking back then at this group known as Ansar al-Islam. This was, you know, one of the, the groups that the Bush administration used as justification for entering into Iraq. And, and it, obviously a, a source of significant controversy, right? The uh, the decision to go into Iraq in the first place. But there was no doubt that that group was was there, um, that it was uh, a threat and that it was going to grow. And I think, you know, that that's one of the interesting things as well, looking back, that that was a major challenge. And I, you know, I actually traveled to Iraq uh, went to the Kurdistan region and 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 actually had an opportunity to interview some of their captured prisoners uh, who were talking about their ideology. And you had a sense then, these guys were nuts, um, you know, you had a sense then that the Iraq model um, was going to be a dangerous one. You had a sense that as, you know, our efforts to bring peace to Iraq unraveled, that this group was only going to grow stronger. And of course it did. And, and obviously we know the painful history um, you know, about the evolution into, um, you know, uh, to ISIS and, and others, or at least parts of that group. So, um, you know, looking back, it was, you know, I, I only wish I did a little bit more, um, on that affiliate group in particular, given what we now know.
0: Yeah. The Ansar al-Islam story, I don't want to belabor the point, but it is interesting because Zarqawi, who you rightfully highlighted, was working with Ansar al-Islam in Iraq. He, of course, is the one that goes off to found, you know, he has his own organization, he founds al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then Ansar al-Islam becomes basically a foil in some ways for the predecessor to ISIS and then ISIS. And we see the correspondence that was recovered in bin Laden's lair in which the successor organizations to Ansar al-Islam are actually, you know, basically warning about what's coming out of the the forerunner to ISIS. And uh, interestingly enough, a point that most, I think a lot of analysts have missed, that bin Laden argued over and over again that basically he wanted the Ansar al-Islam group, Ansar al-Sunnah, to basically fold in with the predecessor to ISIS, and of course they didn't. But it's interesting because that's one of the places where maybe their management style within al-Qaeda leadership missed the problem early on or, or didn't fully grasp that this was something they could potentially blow back against them. But let's move on a little bit. So you go from uh, the Washington Institute for uh, Near East Policy, um, and then you I think, is it right after that you become an official at the Treasury Department, John? All right. So you go to work for the Treasury Department. Now, this is the part of the podcast that I think I was most interested in getting you to explain a little bit because Bill and I for years have spent a lot of time at War Journal covering these designations that come down primarily from the Treasury Department, but also um, from State Department uh, on occasion. And Bill and I knew early on uh, from talking to a lot of folks, including yourself, that basically these designations Are important because they essentially reflect the they have a gold standard of intelligence behind them. That basically they have to be close to bulletproof uh, when it comes to legal challenges and other issues that may arise in terms of the evidentiary standard that's used to um, file them to publish them. And I was hoping maybe you could explain to listeners why that is. You have more insight into that than we do. You have more knowledge of that than we do. Maybe you could explain to listeners why these designations are as important as we say they are from that perspective.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I'll just say that from. 2004 to 2007, which was when I was in Treasury, um, spent a lot of time in, um, you know, magnetically sealed door, um, pouring over intelligence till my eyes, you know, were blurry. Um, but, you know, my task was to identify people who are engaged in illicit finance on behalf of Al Qaeda, primarily. Uh, back then, that was the, the primary threat. Um, and, you know, I had my lanes, um, where, you know, I was asked to look and, you know, we ended up finding, um, a number of, um, interesting people that you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't know about unless you were looking at the intelligence, if you were, you know, tracking these groups on a really granular level. And my job was to basically collect hundreds of documents as proof. And this is what we call an evidentiary. It would take me several months to compile this. And this is open source, but it's also multiple high side um, uh, sources. So multiple intelligence sources um, that I was given access to. And ultimately I come together with this huge binder and it includes the names of the, of the people, including their AKAs. It includes where they're born. It includes when they're born, uh, where they live now um, you know, kind of any piece of identifier information that would be useful Um, And then on top of that, you start looking through the reasons for this. And, you know, the the reasons are usually threefold. One is providing financial support to an already designated terrorist organization. Another one is providing technical support. Um, So that could mean, you know, providing some kind of an assistance through banking uh, or through computer uh, assisted fraud, things like that. And then, um, then there is kind of a broader prong, which is just otherwise providing material support, which you know is a really broad topic that you know we could get into. But it basically means that if even if you provided Al Qaeda with I don't know sleeping bags and tents, that's still actually providing assistance to um, you know to a terrorist organization, and you should be held accountable. That alone wouldn't be enough to designate, but that with those other prongs that I mentioned was how we collected that evidence. Once it was all collected, and again, we're talking about hundreds of pages, really just mind-numbing stuff after a while. But the goal was, um, you know, you get it past the lawyers at Treasury, then you get it past the lawyers at State, then there's an interagency process. And I think this is still how it works today, um, where the interagency looks at these designations and they basically decide whether there are any equities that, you know, for example, the CIA or the White House might have. That would get in the way of a designation, and then seeing none, then you have is the rollout, and this is where I think you know you guys were you guys realized it early. What was known as the statement of the case, right, which is this short statement as to why a given person or charity or, or entity is designated. Um, I had to go through a an insane declassification process where I had to go back to the various agencies where I pulled that information and requested them to sign off on individual sentences that I included with footnotes in that initial document that had hundreds of pages. And they would go through and redact and they would accept or reject. And eventually I would have 30, 40 sentences that I would have to string together in a way that would get approved by the intelligence community. And that's the stuff that would come out. So really what it was, is the closest thing you have to just flat out declassified intelligence about individuals involved in supporting terrorist organizations financially or otherwise. So it is kind of a gold standard. Now I will say that some analysts were more careful than others. And so not every designation was um, of the exact same standard, but I think the number of lawyers involved, um, the number of gray hairs, and believe me, I got plenty now, um, you know, where you're just constantly butting your head with these lawyers, asking them to give you uh, the green light to move ahead. It was that process that o- ultimately made me feel more comfortable that this was the U.S. government speaking in a pretty unequivocal voice.
1: John, uh, you had mentioned that the, it goes from treasury to state, and then you said to the White House, and then you said something can get in the way of the designation. What Can you describe some of those things that could prevent that packet from actually becoming a terrorist designation is it yeah, political if there's, is a, is it? If
2: there's a political process going on the white house is already wedded to um you know it could be a problem you know i mean for example if you know let's just say the u.s government is trying to broker some kind of calm i uh, wouldn't call it peace in a place like iraq maybe you don't or, or maybe
1: yemen with the Houthis or yemen right, right, right? or that, that's
2: where we see yeah. recently the delisting that was of course yep. an fdo but, um, you know, foreign terrorist organization, which is a designation by the State Department, not the Treasury, um, not done according to the executive order 13224, but, um, you know, uh, using other powers. But you, you would see the U.S. government, um, you know, at a fairly high level, making sure that there were no problems in doing this. And by the way, there'd be some cases where you're about to designate. Somebody and you know one of the three-letter agencies comes to you and says, you know, we have somebody inside with this guy, and we're collecting human. We got you know we we have an operation that's ongoing, so you can't do this now. Um, We need you to hold off, and when we're done, we'll let you know, and then you'll get your green light. And there would be things like that that would happen, Um, so you'd have designations on hold for weeks or months on end. Which, by the way, for an analyst like myself at the time, I mean, I I wanted to off myself. You know, because here you are, you spent all this time getting bleary eyed in a a closed door, you know, um, you know, skiff, you know, you've done all the work. And then they're like, oh, yeah, oops, sorry, can't use it now. We're going to assert ourselves because you got to remember the Treasury is not the senior partner here. Right. I mean, this is like, you know, at, at least back then we were kind of a backwater. We had just started to work with the Intel community and the other agencies had a hell of a lot more time. Um, You know, and and that track record where they could just say, no, this is our equity. Sorry.
1: Yeah, it's and this is interesting because we often get the question, you know, we'll write up someone and, you know, it's been clear to Tom and I and anyone who has half of a brain why this individual should have been designated four years ago. And then, you know, he's listed and then what the comments will often get is, well, that took long enough or wow, what the, wow, that's a lightning speed process you got going on there. But what John's explaining is there's a lot going on in the background that we can't see and I hadn't even considered.
2: Yeah. One other thing that's probably worth noting is, you know, some of these guys are, are cannon fodder is what uh, a guy at, at, at Pentagon once explained to me. Like the idea that you go through a whole designation process for a guy that is, you know, has a date with a drone, um, you know, in his near future, why go through that process? If you know that, you know, uh, the guy's going to get rubbed out. Um, so there was that, that kind of question too, is like, you know, it's the guys that are kind of embedded in, you know, in the West operating out of Europe, operating out of capitals, um, in the Arab world, you know, and they're, they're you're having a hard time finding them. Those are the guys that are easier. But, you know, I remember looking at some guys, you know, related to AQIM um, that, you know, ultimately, or back then they were GSBC, but, you know, they're operating in the Sahel, right? So they're operating out in the desert, um, you know, and they're dealing in, I don't know, gasoline trade or, you know, some other illicit financial activity. There was no reason to designate them because, you know, at some point they were going to have their date with destiny and, and it was just not worth our time. Um, it was just more about, you know, the U.S. working it out with the partner country or the maybe European country that was working with us in tracking somebody. So that would also sometimes explain the decision sure. to defer the designation.
1: Yeah. And, and it is an example of what you're talking about. Uh, I'll do in Pakistan, the U.S. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was probably about five, six years ago, maybe maybe an earlier. They designated a guy named. uh, uh what was his Aminullah, Aminullah Peshawari? And Sheikh Aminullah. Sheikh yeah. Aminullah, yeah. And he was a um, – he is a Taliban leader, leader of the Peshawar Shura, which is one of their four major councils. Um, also a member of Al-Qaeda. And no, 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 no. That's
0: not, that's not
1: possible. It's not possible. And also runs a place called the Ganj Madrasa in Peshawar. So he's kind of untouchable in the sense in Pakistan where like that's somewhere where the U.S. isn't going to drone. They might hit something in Waziristan, um, or would have years ago, but not going to go out and spread their wings to Peshawar. So that's where this, that's where this designation process is really important to. You know, Tom and me. Yeah, we can we can, you know, pick up you know, Abu Yahya, all Libbys and all of those individuals designated. We all it's clear case, but someone like the, the 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 untouchables, I think Tom or John as you would say, the ones, you know, financing operations and from Qatar or Saudi Arabia or operating in Pakistan. Those are the ones that really Tom and I find very juicy in this designation.
0: Yeah, you know, that there's another Aspect of this as well, which is you—you you do have with when it comes to the designation process. And I think this probably postdates your time at Treasury. In fact, I know it does, uh, John. But you remember there was a debate over whether or not to designate Boko Haram, uh, the group known as Boko Haram to the West anyway, as a terrorist organization. And there were these pseudo intellectual arguments put forth that you know basically Boko Haram, you know, if we des- if the U.S. designates them as a terrorist organization, they'll drive them into the global jihad or you know f- you know b- somehow enhance their terrorist qualities, which is. Basically, about as dumb as it gets. I think when you, you look at the history of Boko Haram, I mean, it, it shows you that the politics of this. Yeah, you have institutional equities, you have uh, what the defense industry thinks about certain things. They're weighing in on this, but then you also have you know outside pressure from people who are basically against this process um, and are against designations who try and uh, you know create problems. In fact, remember it was there was this delay in designating Boko Haram under the Obama administration, and it was only eventually that. They were uh, designated, um, you know, and it, to me, you know, I, I don't really care one way or another. You know, I don't have any any stake in the fight about whether or not a group is designated or not. But I just thought the arguments against Disney Boko Haram were particularly weak and, and reflected an ideological position.
2: Yeah, I'm going to quote a guy named Tom Jocelyn, who always <laughs> likes to you know, talk about disconnecting the dots. And, and we saw a lot of it, you know, with, um, you know, I mean, we could get into Tunisia, we could get into other, you know, uh, sub-Saharan groups that, you know, showed some clear evidence of uh, ties and, and operational capabilities that merged with Al-Qaeda, you know, communications with Al-Qaeda's leadership. But, you know, you'd see a reticence on the part of the U.S., maybe because, you know, for example, I mean, during the Arab Spring, given all of the kind of, the, the difficulty that the U.S. had in trying to um, engineer a soft landing with with all of these uprisings, you know, you might see some concern about designation of groups and alienating groups that could become part of a, you know, at some point, a government process. My take has always been that, you know, if you're thinking about this too much and you're hoping too much, it's going to backfire. It just will. Right. I mean, because the facts show what they show. If you've got an organization that's working with al-Qaeda, it's not going to stop doing that because you decided not to designate them. Um, What happens is actually they have greater uh, room to operate. And it's just, you know, it's just you're playing with fire. Um, It's why I've opposed what's happening in Yemen. Also, we mentioned briefly the Houthi um, delisting by the State Department. You know, here we came out. Of course, it happened right at the end of the, the Trump administration where they designated the group. You know, it was not uncontroversial, but the evidence shows that they're a terrorist organization. It's kind of hard to dance around that. And when you start kind of, you know, uh, tying yourself in knots and getting, you know, getting into mental gymnastics, I think all it's going to do is blow back on the U.S. And I think we've seen a number of cases where that's happened.
1: John, I don't know if you caught this in the delisting. Uh, statement, I think it was by, uh, by Anthony, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. He lays out all the reasons why the Houthis are a terrorist organization, using suicide, uh, boats to attack shipping and, uh, launching rockets and, and missiles against foreign countries, against civilian areas. He gives, gives you every reason in the world why this, why the Houthis should remain a foreign terrorist organization. And then yet to list them. I I just found that astounding It's just an observation. But and you know, by you the way, and by the
0: way, to both your both your points, I mean, it was right after the delisting, what did the Houthis do? Yeah. They launched an offensive. So oh. if you're if you're if you're trying to incentivize good behavior on their part by delisting them or or saying, you know, hey, we can treat you as a normalized actor, they did the exact opposite within days of the delisting, you know? I mean it's it sort of you know, but again, I don't I don't expect reality to come crashing down on any of these Ideologues on this stuff, so you know, and, and
2: I, I don't expect you know I don't expect it to change anytime soon, but I think it is worth noting a couple of things. I mean, one, um, you know, the 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 reason ostensibly for delisting was because we needed to get humanitarian assistance into Yemen, and that if we designated the Houthis, they may not, um, it may be more difficult for aid groups to to be able to provide that uh, that assistance. But, you know, we have the ability to issue waivers. I mean, we've worked in other countries where terrorists are operating, whether it's Syria or Gaza, and we've been able to find workarounds. And I think we would have been able to do it there. There was kind of an insistence that we wouldn't or couldn't. And now you look at what uh, the U.S. is up against. You got this envoy, Tim Lenderking, who's in Yemen. He's begging the Houthis to come to the table, but we don't have leverage. And that's, you know, I think that's an important part of designation, whether it's done at state or it's done um, at the treasury, right? You have this leverage. You can say, look, if you start, you know, um, if you stop killing people, if you stop engaging in terrorism, we can lift the designation, but we're going to keep it on until you do. And we're going to continue to actually tighten the screws. So what we did is we ended up taking the financial leverage off the table and and to a certain extent, the diplomatic leverage. Um, and, and then we also, by the way, cut the um, aid to the Saudis who were engaging in military operations so we got rid of diplomacy we got rid of or actually let's just say leverage diplomacy we got rid of economic pressure we got yeah, rid of military the, sur-
0: the servile diplomacy
1: oh continues. come on tom you stole you my know? line i was gonna quote you come on <laughs> tom <laughs>
2: <laughs> but anyway you know you know ask yourself why we're, we're not getting anywhere with the houthis right now it's because we, we don't have leverage yeah. um you know and, and that's what this stuff can do doesn't always do it sometimes you designate and it's like a tree falling in the forest um but sometimes you do it and and you know these groups will sit up and take notice and you know try to challenge it or at least start to moderate some of their behavior
0: well i think i stole your thunder there sorry, you did though. steal my I, thunder tom i was, yeah, was sorry painful. i, I yeah, no, I just, uh, when I heard the diplomacy, John had said that we ended diplomacy, which uh, I think it ended the version of diplomacy that we would advocate for, which would be strong-minded, strong-willed, and, you know, have a clear idea of what you're doing as opposed to just groveling, right, which is basically what we've been documenting with the Taliban for years here now. We've had, a, we've got a, what, about a decade of groveling to the Taliban for a so-called peace deal here, on and off, of course, and that has gotten us nowhere. Uh, the Taliban is just, you know, was happy to watch America leave. All these, all these bad ar- actors are very happy to have um, the American side negotiate the terms of its surrender or its departure. Of course, you know, why wouldn't they be? But uh, other than that, we haven't seen very many benefits. But let's talk now a little bit. Let's transition a little bit. You were talking about um, – well, let me say one thing about the Arab Spring before we move on. So one of the curious, most curious things about you, the political dynamic you were talking about there where basically there was this reluctance to identify – al-Qaeda actors originally and then of course some of them more for mutated into ISIS actors there was a, there was this reluctance to designate some of them early on in places like Libya and Tunisia because they wanted to treat them as if they could be part of some legitimate political process and what i found the most interesting about this is there's there's actually a complete contradiction in this thinking these these pe- the people who argued against these designations for like the Ansar al-Sharia groups for example um the truth of the matter was the reason why we Accurately, by the way, and to some, and with a lot of dissent and a lot of criticism from the Washington cliques, uh, identified the Ansar Sharia groups as Al Qaeda front groups. Again, accurately, so was because they stood out from other groups in Libya and Tunisia. Right, you know, it wasn't like every group, every militia was Al Qaeda affiliated in post-Qaddafi or or during the uprising against Qaddafi. Far from it. It was only because certain groups had certain characteristics that made them obviously, if you knew what you were looking for, part of the Al-Qaeda fold, you know? And so basically this, in other words, this is essentially amounted to willful blindness, that basically the American government was going to choose not to see what was right in front of them. And so you have all these Al-Qaeda veterans leading on Al-Sharia chapters, and we're supposed to believe that that is just a coincidence that these guys are part of that diaspora that you were talking about from Afghanistan, you know? And, and so what, John?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll just say this, that, you know, I, I always appreciated your guys' approach to all of this. It's kind of Occam's razor, right? If it looks like a terrorist group and it has all the characteristics of one, well, then it it is. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I heard very early on when I entered the Treasury, one of my colleagues said, you know, when you look low side and you look at open source and all signs are pointing to the fact that it's a terrorist organization, there is a 99.9% chance that the high side intelligence is going to underscore that and strengthen your argument, right? It it is like a point 0.1% chance that the evidence will not stack up in in that direction, and so it's just you know it's it's not every time, but it's almost every single time. Um, there are of course exceptions, but they are very very rare, and um, you know I think it's just kind of a cautionary note to you know anyone looking at this designation process, the idea that somehow you know, we should hold off because we're not sure, you know what, um, you know, when we get the evidence and especially when, you know, designation comes through, it's pretty darn clear that, you know, we're dealing with the, with the real thing.
0: Yeah, John, we're not, you know, when, just to put a fine point on that, when, you know, Ansar al-Sharia Libya was broadcasting these Al-Qaeda sermons from known, -known well-known Al-Qaeda ideologues, uh, and Osama bin Laden, uh, ninety six point nine on the FM dial or whatever the hell it was in uh, in Libya. There, you know, you would think that this would be the type of evidence that would smack you over the head and say that whatever sort of disconnected dots paradigm you've adopted on this is is no longer germane to the <laughs> to what we're looking at. But but be that as it may, it, it continued. You know, um, but you know, here let's talk about another the probably one of the most infamous disconnected dots examples. Um, because this is something I know you've been tracking alongside us for years, which is Iran and Al Qaeda and the agreement between the Iranian regime. And Al-Qaeda. This is something that, um, you know, every time we talk about this or write about this, we are confronted with a mountain of misinformation and ignorance and mythology uh, about this topic. However, you have, on the other hand, you have this series of designations, many of which came out of the Treasury Department. Many and most of those, by the way, during the Obama years in the Obama administration, documenting this agreement. It's a you know real agreement between the Iranian regime on the one hand and senior al-Qaeda leadership on the others that allows in the Obama administration's terms, this is the way the Treasury Department, State Department on the, on the, during the Obama years coined it, the core pipeline for al-Qaeda to exist inside Iran. And there's all sorts of evidence that this continues to this day. And yet, curiously, anytime this topic comes up in the mainstream press or and anytime anybody's talking about this, these designations, you know, nobody references them. They just pretend like they don't exist, like these uh these are out there because they contradict the narrative. Maybe talk a little bit about those designations, if you could, for a second. And that this isn't something that the Treasury Department or the State Department would just come up with out of nowhere during the Obama years, right? I mean, these these are they had real evidence and they still have real evidence that this is this is what has occurred and is occurring.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you guys know this better than than most. I mean, you know, this is an ongoing uh problem. Uh, You know, we saw indications of Iran and al-Qaeda cooperating in the 9-11 Commission report. Um, And then that was followed up by designations uh, by the Bush Treasury. Then it was followed up by designations in the Obama Treasury. We saw and more coming out of the Trump administration, including some very clear statements by the Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. and, And I mean, making it very clear that the problem still existed. You guys, of course, you know, in the bin Laden that were spirited out of Abbottabad, um, you know, there was additional indications, particularly with bin Laden's son, which I know you guys can talk about um, and and sort of describe his relationship with the Iranian regime. You know, I think, you know, what you see, though, is is a lot of people saying, well, you know, they're under house arrest and, you know, it's, you know, that the Iranians are actually helping us in some way by keeping them, under lock and key, or, you know, but that's not what the evidence shows. The evidence shows through these designations, and again, I already described the the, the very careful process of the compilation of those uh, designation packages and the statements of the case that are ultimately declassified, right? We were super clear back in the Bush days, and, and even the Obama White House, you know, I mean, I think some of those trailed off toward the end, I think, because of the
0: yeah, actually, I would I would disagree just a little bit there. Actually, because as somebody's looked through the designations, I think the Bush years actually pulled their punches. I, I it agree. wasn't it wasn't until the Obama it wasn't until the Obama years, July two thousand eleven in particular, that the U.S. government officially said that there is an agreement between the Iranian regime and Al Qaeda. You know, before that, basically, there is yeah. a
2: reason for that, which is again, you know, talking about equities, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the Bush administration was asking the the Iranian regime back then for help. In, and by the way, it happened also with Syria, right? And a number of other countries that we wouldn't necessarily want to rely on for counterterrorism assistance. But we did anyway, because everyone was afraid of the United States. There was kind of a sense that, you know, no one knew who Bush was going to invade next, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq. I mean, you know, we, we were, it looked like we were ready to topple any regime that wasn't cooperating with us. So everybody kind of jumped on board. And you had this kind of nominal cooperation for a short period of time by the Iranians, but. When you look at that long-term trajectory, man, it is so clear that um that al-Qaeda has found a um a shelter uh in Iran at at a fairly senior level, right? Senior leadership, which I know a very a
0: very about. senior level, yeah. Yeah.
1: John, um so why, you know, maybe you can't answer this question, but I'll ask it anyway. 2000 2011 that secret deal is disclosed by Treasury. Why would the Obama administration sign off on that, as you noted. The process to go from Treasury to State, interagency, all the way up to the White House. And the Obama administration's keen on. I know what you were going to say. The the JCPOA, um, the Joint Plan of Action, to you know for the nuclear deal with the Iranians. The Obama administration probably tapered off some of its uh, designations at a period of time, so as not to draw um, notice to that. But by two thousand and eleven. You explain, you know, do you have any any thoughts as to why that this this secret deal was ex- exposed at this time?
2: You're talking about the the Iran uh, in, the interim Iran nuclear deal.
0: Yes. No. Yeah. Yeah. But the secret deal you're talking about is the deal oh, between sorry. the Iranian yeah. regime and Al Qaeda. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, so the secret deal is that, and then, but it, it, by 2011, twelve, the the Obama administration is seeking to push the nuclear deal with Iran. In order to. So why would they disclose the Al Qaeda ties while they're trying to cut a deal with the Iranians?
2: Well, I think back in 2011, uh, you know, I think the Iran nuclear, um, you know, uh, architecture was still very much, um, you know, a a work in progress. Uh, It wasn't until 2013 when the JPOA, the interim nuclear deal was announced. Right. So back then you had, you know, kind of secret dealings going on, the Oman Channel. Where American uh, officials are meeting with Iranian officials, and and that you know that that's happening in the shadows. It's a small, small circle of people that are involved in this. So you have the Treasury still kind of doing what it what it was meant to do, um, and and the U.S. government largely doing what it was meant to do. Then I think as the the, the nuclear deal becomes something that looks more full. I think that's when you begin to see the trailing off. Again, you know, it's all about equities, right? It's all about trading off what you want to prioritize. And of course, if you'd asked me back then, I would have said, you know, you're prioritizing the wrong thing. I think that, you know, um, having the American people be aware of this, you know, uh, ongoing, uh, quiet relationship between Iran and Al Qaeda you know defying everyone who were you know who was out there saying that Sunni and Shia you know extremists don't get along that these things are impossible they were in fact very possible and it was very dangerous i think it still is very dangerous for american national security um but you know once again you had the obama administration prioritize one over another and this is you know this is ultimately the push and pull of government um you know you got to respect that i just I don't necessarily agree with the decision.
0: Well, I, I, let me just—I'll chime in here again. So, in terms of respecting policy preferences, one of one of the more curious aspects of all this is that it's you know, people who were involved in pushing the Iran nuclear accord, known as JCPOA, um, the sort of the political hacks, the ideologues who were fighting that fight in the media and in DC circles, um, including some people who have rejoined government, unfortunately. Um, I distinguish them from the professionals, I would say. Um, they like to accuse people like us of saying, well, you're just trying to gin up an Iran-Al Qaeda connection to undermine nuclear diplomacy or to advocate on behalf of a war with Iran. And actually, it's exactly the opposite. They're the ones who are denying evidence that came out of the Obama administration's Treasury and State Departments, right? Um, so I could prove my case within the four walls of what the Obama administration said, or at least demonstrate my case, Um, you know, they're the ones who are lying about that in order to justify their policy preferences and to demonize their opposition in the policy world. And so there, to put, a, to put a fine point on it, I'm thinking of somebody like Ned Price, who's now the State Department spokesperson, who I personally dealt with his lies about our work on this and stuff that he spread in the media. And I didn't get very far because people can come to me and say, hey, Tom, what's the deal? And I say, well, it's bullshit. And so they back down. But, but it, you know, some people were takers on it. And I see him out there today, and I would I would love to have somebody who actually knows about this actually question him about it. Um, but you know, guys like that, you know, what I would say is, you know, guys like that, they actually practice, they, they sort of project, I would say, onto others what they're actually doing, right? They project onto others nefarious motives and 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 politicizing intelligence and and you know, trying to upplay certain things when actually they're doing the same. They're actually doing that. They're downplaying things in order to justify their policy.
2: Behavior. Yeah, and you need to you need to I think take a step back. And this is happening.
0: Um, You know,
2: I I think, you know, the broader trend that I'm watching um, that I find very troubling and have spent more time trying to understand is this question of what I would call neo-isolationism. These are Washington analysts that, you know, broadly advocate for something they call restraint. Analysts Uh,
0: being generous, but yes.
2: Yeah. Um, and, And, you know, these are, you know, these are organizations and analysts that are basically looking for any reason that we can to hightail it out of the region. And, you know, look, Tom, as as you've rightly noted, our footprint in the Middle East is already pretty darn small. Um, You know, I think that over the years we've seen that the U.S. has lost its taste for, for being involved in the Middle East, and I think maybe for good reason in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, But, you know, you have uh, a a gaggle of analysts now that are out there advocating for capitulation, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iran, whether it's, you know, as you call it, disconnect the dots with Al Qaeda groups that we just don't have a reason to be there any longer and we need to pivot to Asia or we need to pivot home and we're spending too much on defense. And look, I I get the the reasons for wanting to not spend, you know, more than, I don't know, 2.5 percent GDP on defense. I get I get the rationale for it. Um, But this needs to be done in a way that doesn't um, involve impugning those that continue to point out the actual threats to America, as I think, you know, the three of us have. We continue to point out whether it's the Sony side or the Shia side. And what you have is in response, people that just say, well, the fact that you're pointing out these threats makes you a warmonger. Um, I I just, you know, it it becomes ad hominem. Um, It becomes a a, a debate that, in my view, is nonsensical. I think we can walk and chew gum. We can figure out how to have that smaller footprint, fight the enemies that we need to fight while also pivoting to China and maybe even saving some money on defense. We, We need to have a serious discussion about it. The, the people that are pushing this narrative that I think you've described, I don't think they're serious about trying to find real solutions. Um, it's very ideological in nature and something that I find very troubling right now in Washington. There isn't anything more swampy than than what we're seeing right now with this neo-isolationist trend.
1: Yeah, and if, if I may uh, just add to that, I think the same people that are pushing for this neo-isolationist are many of the same people who gave us bad policies that caused, you know, Leading us to fail in Iraq, to fail in Afghanistan, to you know allow the Defense Department to spend far too much money in, in, improperly, and so yeah, I, I just find again distasteful is 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 quite tame word uh, for me, but it'll it'll do for this podcast. It's, let your, let
2: your Philly side come out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> um, no, I can't. It, anything else would be far too vulgar.
0: Yeah, I mean, the way I would put it, John, is that, you know, you take Afghanistan. I think Bill and I can critique the Afghan war better than any of the neo-isolationists, okay? We can we can give you a play-by-play about how this thing went awry. And we're very critical of the leadership here, both on the military side and political leadership. And you're not going to get a, a war cheerleading story from either of us. You know, we you can look at a reporting in the World War Journal well, more than a decade ago now, and you could see that we predicted we were going to end up in this spot, right? That this, there were fault lines here. But- uh, what is different, I think, about what we do is we just don't want to whitewash the Taliban, right? It's fine to say, hey, you know, we think the Afghanistan war has been mismanaged, mishandled, and it has, it has misspent American resources, and there are too many problems there to keep it going. I understand that, right? I understand somebody saying they don't want to send American service members in Afghanistan anymore. I understand that too, right? I don't understand somebody telling me, but the Taliban is really just a local group, and they're our peace partner and could be our counterterrorism partner. Whoa, wait a minute. No, 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 no. And don't tell me that it's America that's kept that war in Afghanistan going when America and its ally, the Afghan government, have repeatedly begged for a ceasefire from the Taliban, have been groveling the Taliban on and off for years for a phony peace deal, right? Don't tell me, don't impugn America's motives here. America was drawn into this war. Yes, it's been terribly mismatched and mishandled, uh, but don't tell me that America wanted to be in Afghanistan or the military industrial complex wants to be there for some reason. And, you know, basically that's all that's keeping this going. No, don't, don't give me that. And,
2: you know, I'll just add to that, 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 you know, that kind of um, just real thinking about Afghanistan. I mean, we we need to see more of it on, on the Iran side too. Right. I mean, we were hearing, you know, people, I mean, it's mental gymnastics, right? Hey, if we just empower the moderates, you know, we'll be able to sideline the hardliners. And we need to do that by providing the world's, you know, most dangerous terrorist organization, uh, ter- terrorist sponsor with sanctions relief. Right. If we just do that, it'll all work out and we'll be able to come up with a nuclear deal that'll make everybody happy. And we'll all high five and go home. The, the mental gymnastics that that are involved in, in doing this kind of stuff. Right. And we see it, you know, in a bunch of different places. By the way, we saw it in a, in. Iraq and Syria. And look what that got us. Right. The idea that, hey, we can just get out of here. You know, there's there's minimal risk and we don't see any any real U.S. imperative for being there. Oops, we got the rise of ISIS. Right. I mean, it's this mental gymnastics approach to counterterrorism, counter radicalization and dealing with malign actors in the region that I just simply I just don't get. Um, And, you know, I I think it's 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 worth an effort to, to combat it. Again, you don't necessarily have to be pushing for conflict, but the idea of challenging this wrong-headed thinking, I think someone's got to do it. And I'm glad you guys are doing it. And I'm glad FTD is doing it because, you know, you just see more and more people kind of embrace this thinking. It becomes a herd mentality, which, as you guys know, you know, is, is, is prominent in, in Washington and very dangerous.
1: Amen to that, John. And I want to give one example of you know, the same people um, making you know policy who are you know who have caused the problem. General Miller, who's the currently the leader of resolute support and u s forces in Afghanistan for he's been command there for what? three years now, Tom? is that two two something something like that. yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly. Yeah. He's been telling us that the Taliban is going to break with al Qaeda, that they all all this nonsense. The Taliban tried to kill him by the way he um just com- completely yeah, but not the- as
2: al qaeda as as a moderate group
1: right exactly and- right that was
0: the moderate jihadis right Yes, right, exactly
1: and he's up for consideration for uh for centcom commander you know We've had other examples of this in the past. The same people, General Dunford, the head of Afghanistan, U.S. forces in Afghanistan, uh, and I guess it was ISAF. At Wh- that time.
0: Whom, by the way, the Taliban trolls now in their public statements. Exactly.
1: Publicly a loser. But yeah. yeah, exactly. Became chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm just looking at this narrowly from the military side. The same people who are responsible for being dishonest about what's happening in Afghanistan for, for supporting bad policy under multiple administrations are promoted or given positions of power. And how can we, how can we ever come to, to a place where we can make good policy when the same people pushing the same bad ideas are are constantly promoted?
2: Yeah. And I would just, you know, I'll add this, that, you know, as we, look at, at some major shifts that are that are coming in the foreign policy space, I mean, this is sort of the stuff that I have to look at, um, you know, as part of my job. But, you know, I look at a couple of major shifts that appear already underway in foreign policy. And, you know, one of them is the pivot to China and, and, and the, the imperative to engage in, you know, what we call great power competition and, and to, you know, start to address all of the many malign activities that the Chinese Communist Party engages in. And then we have the the issue of domestic terrorism as well, which, you know, is, uh, you know, increasingly something that folks in D.C. are talking about. And I just I have very little faith that we're going to come up with strategies that counter both effectively. When you look at the track record of all these other conflicts and as Tom always calls it, disconnect the dots and, you know, trying to explain where we might be able to just if we just walk away under these circumstances, it'll all be fine. Um, you know, it just does not give one a whole lot of confidence in the U.S. government's ability to combat new challenges, given our track record on old ones.
0: Yeah, and when you raise domestic extremism, and this is something we're we're probably going to be talking about more in uh, future podcasts and elsewhere. We're we're trying to step through the landmines, as our listeners know, on this issue because we probably our views are probably out of sync with some of the dogmas that are out there. The way I put it to people is that I think there are certain right-wing ideologues, including on cable news, who pretend like there's no issue there and that this is just all made up, right? And that's just a lie. I mean, come on. You know, look around. You can there's plenty of evidence you can see that this is an issue and it's an issue that's been growing and something the U.S. is gonna have to deal with. However, I will say this: there are people on the left who have basically tried to make this the central focal point of the U.S. government's counterterrorism resources long before it grew into a, a phenomenon. Now they would say they would say, well, they were prescient in that regard, but no. A lot of the arguments they made were disingenuous. I would say, um, you know, there were there are people who are also trying to basically say that, you know, this phenomenon, you know, this this you know, this mixture of you know real hardcore extremists and the island of misfit toys that sort of overran the Capitol on January sixth, um, that that mixture defines the seventy four million people who voted for Donald Trump, right? We see arguments that are trending that way. That's a very dangerous way to think about this oh and Tom
1: no less be put in re-education centers as well
0: yeah I mean some of the some of what, exact some of what we're seeing is just you know going you know if the the two things one the failures of the counterterrorism effort in the post 9 eleven paradigm should not be replicated domestically right we shouldn't think of this in the same terms at all and, and repeat some of the same pathologies right and two you know, the problem is that a lot of this gets tied into politics and people are weaponizing this for political purposes. And I, I'm very, that we got to be very careful about that. I mean, I, I'm very critical, as people know, of Donald Trump and his January 6th speech in front of the Capitol. I, I've said publicly, I think he incited that for sure. I've I've read and listened to that speech over and over again. I think the QAnon stuff is directly an outgrowth of his persona and his cult of personality. And there are many problems there. You have other right-wing militias I'm concerned about. Absolutely. On the other hand, I would say there are people on the left who want to use that to say that all 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump are, you know, basically on the verge of being domestic extremists. And that's just ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The only I would add a couple of things because uh, I, I think you put it well. Um, but, you know, so I live in the D.C. area and I took a trip down to D.C. a few weeks ago. Um, and um, I, I got to say, you know, we got military vehicles uh blocking streets you got concertina wire i mean i have to say the 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 green zone um in in baghdad looked a little bit more inviting than than washington right now um Oof. and it's just it, it's 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 really disturbing to see the us locked down like that um i don't remember seeing anything like this after 911 right so this you know th- this could be a real overreach i think And I I know that there is a debate inside the intelligence community right now about how to reallocate resources. And I do have real concerns. Again, I think taking nothing away from the threat that exists that I think you put really well, Tom. But, you know, there is a question of if we, you know, if we shift our resources to, let's say, right now it's 80-20, let's say, for jihadism and foreign threats versus the 20% domestic. I'm just using that as a, you know, as a random example. And we go from there to 60 40 uh, where 40% is dedicated to domestic threats. Um, are we leaving ourselves vulnerable to some of those foreign threats that we should be tracking? Is that the right way to think about this right now? So there's the political component of this. And then there's the actual security element that I, I have to say, I think it's it's worth having a real discussion. Um, look, I'm all for having the Capitol Police get better trained and, and have a bigger budget. Sure, that makes perfect sense. But all of the other deployments that we see around the, the the capital right now, it's crazy. My understanding is that it's roughly the number of people deployed right, right now, um, number of servicemen, is roughly equal to what we have in the Middle East.
1: Yeah. It, that's true, John. I've read that. Yeah.
0: At, at, w- at one point, it was more than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. I don't know if that's currently the case, but that was certainly – that was something that uh, – you know I think people were repeating that and they thought that proved some point for themselves uh, you know, publicly, but – That was the statistic that that I saw over and over and over again was that case. And that's not something to be celebrated, right? I mean, this is not a good thing, right? I mean, you know, and it's interesting, right? I mean, but again, it reflects, I think, to a certain degree, it does reflect the skewed politics of all this, which is something that's very tough to discuss because, you know, for somebody like myself, I'm on an island here on this stuff. So, you know, it's, you know, there's no, you mentioned herding earlier. There's no herd coming to my defense and my views on this stuff, you know, Uh, you know, so that's a, that's a big part of the problem. I think. Um, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna wrap up there. If you think, John, uh, for this this week, this episode. Uh, I think basically, however, I would like to have you back on to talk about Turkey and Qatar because this is another issue set that you um, were ahead of the curve in terms of understanding um, where they were in their, how their policies were shifting, how their priorities were shifting, and that's something for a new episode. But I want to thank you for coming on our episode this week, John. I really appreciate it. You know, we've uh, admired your work for a long time, and you're a good friend of ours. And so, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Keep up the good work, guys.
1: John, thank you so much. Let's grab a cheesesteak and get, get to a Eagles or a Flyers game or Sixers game some, or a Phillies game sometimes. Sounds soon. better than that. Sounds yeah. great. We we should drag John to a Giants Eagles-Giants game. I think that would be fun. I'm not going with you guys to the eagles Oh, come game, on. But I
0: I, I will get a Philly cheesesteak with you, however. All right, It's cool. still, right. still one of the better foods. Someone's liable to get
1: hurt. Right? Still, one. <laughs> not, not with oh. Tom and I there. That's not going to.
0: Not not with me. I'm not getting hurt. That's for sure. So, someone's probably me. But no, no, no. Good. We got you. All right. Well, thanks again, John, for joining us again this week. This is John Shanzer, senior vice president of research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And thank you to our listeners for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you hopefully next week.